Well, growing up, I never learned much about cars. That being said, I never really wanted to learn much about cars as a kid. I was more interested in that which was electronic versus mechanical. But today, for instance, the ability to change the brakes on your own car and you save yourself 300 bucks gives an added incentive to learning a thing or two about cars. And not only have I been recently interested about how cars basically work, but it would be nice to save a, a few bucks on making your own repairs. So earlier this year, I took an adult auto class. In high school, I never took auto shop. I was doing computer science, you know, the nerdy stuff. But so I figured it's never too late to learn, so I took this class. I had a great time learning about cars, engines, some repair work, and you know, learning about combustion. It's not that complex when you think about it. You take a small amount of high-energy fuel, like gasoline, you put it in a small enclosed space, you light it on fire, and there you go. You've got an explosion. A huge amount of energy is released. And if you can do this a whole bunch of times in rapid succession, if you can harness that energy, you've got an engine. You've got yourself an engine. Learn about the basics of an engine. You've got these things called cylinders, which are at the core of the engine. And inside the cylinders is where these gasoline mini-explosions take place. And in each cylinder, you've got these pistons, and those basically, they transform the energy released from that explosion into an up and down motion. That's really what they do. The pistons are connected to this thing called a crankshaft. That transforms the up and down motion of the piston into a rotational motion. And if you're trying to, to turn a wheel, that's what we're after. We want that rotational energy. So really, what the whole process is about releasing energy, harnessing energy, transforming it, and sending it to the tires. That, that's how a car moves. I still, I found myself wondering, okay, that, that's interesting. How did they get those pistons and those cylinders to work them? I and how does, how does that actually work? So I learned about that as well. At least in most engines, there's this four-step process, or a four-stroke cycle, they call it, which takes place in each cylinder. First step, that the intake valve opens, the piston moves down, and the cylinder fills up with air and a gasoline mixture. The second step is compression. The, the piston moves back up and compresses the whole thing, the air and gas. That makes the explosion more powerful. The third step is combustion. The piston moves, when it gets to its, the top of its cycle, spark plug creates a spark, ignites it, and it just blows up. This creates a little small explosion. It shoves the piston back down. Remember, that downward force is what's transformed into that rotational energy. And finally comes the fourth step. The exhaust valve opens up. Everything just blows out the exhaust, and eventually to, through the tailpipe. That's basically it. If you've got a four-cylinder engine, this happens four different times all at once, although the pistons are timed so that each piston is going through a different cycle or stroke at the same or at any given time. And this happens thousands of times per minute. It's creating a lot of energy, enough to take a pretty heavy car and get it moving pretty fast. It's remarkable when you think about it. The rotational energy is sent to the tires. That's where the rubber meets the road, literally. And the friction the tires create, off you go. It's complex, but it, it, it's simple at the same time when you think about it. But pretty amazing. And as you think about the a question pops up, when you have something as intricate as an engine, you have an important question to ask. Where's the power? Where's actually the power being generated in something like a car? In, in a car, you have all these moving parts, there's so much going on, everything working together, but what's actually driving the whole thing? What's giving everything power? That's an important question. And where's the real power located? Maybe it's the tires. Is, is it in the tires? That's really the only moving part we see after all, right? We see it every day. But no 
Power's not in the tires. The tires just express the power. They don't have any power in and of themselves. Maybe it's that crankshaft thing. You know, that, that's driving the tires, right? Well, no, even the crankshaft is being driven by something else. Maybe a car's power, it's in the engine. That's what you see advertised. You want more power. You need a bigger engine. Well, that's partly true, but it's not entirely accurate. I mean, the engine itself doesn't have any power. It's just a chunk of metal. The pistons don't move themselves. You can improve elements of a car to make it use power more efficiently, but all of these components don't contain the real power. So where is it? It's the gasoline. It's the gasoline. The power is located in the gasoline. In a chemical way, the gasoline has the potential energy needed to move the car. Now, you could say it's not just gas. It's gas plus air plus a spark. That's true. But it's, it's actually the gas that has the energy stored up in itself that just needs to be released. You put water in your gas tank, nothing happens. Put milk, nothing happens. Any other liquid, usually nothing happens because they don't have the power. The power is in the gas. If you want more power, you need to do things to better harness that energy and transform it. I mean, how misguided would you be if you're trying to get more power in your car and so you're changing your paint color or you're getting a new rearview mirror? I mean, you can do things to make your car more efficient, but if you want more power, you need to know where it comes from. You need to know what's driving it, where the source of power is. Where am I going with this? Well, another question for you. Where is God's power located? Where is God's power? You ever think about that? Obviously, his power resides in him, but has he put it anywhere else and told us about it? I can't tell you just how important this question is. I mean, forget something trivial like making your car go faster. How do you change the direction of your life? How do you change your heart, who you are? Where's the power for that? That's an important question. And the answer is, it's in God's word. God has put his power in his word. Think about this. Think back to creation, Genesis 1 through 2. Six days, God creates everything that exists, our universe as we know it. What did God do during creation? What did he do? He didn't do anything. He spoke. He said. He, he just used his word. I mean, the first thing God does is speak, Genesis 1 3. God said, let there be light. And what happens? There was light. It just happens. All throughout creation, it's this way. And what does this tell you? God's power is in his word. He's put his power in his word. Now get this. God's word comes in many forms. Sometimes it's spoken, like in creation. God just speaks and things happen. Sometimes it's written. The Bible, the scripture that we have, is God's written word. The Bible is like a huge battery capturing and storing God's power. God's word sometimes, or rather one time, also came in the form of a person. Think about that. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's talking about Christ. In, in Greek, the word for word is logos. And Jesus is the divine logos. He, he's the word of God. It's talking about the incarnation where God came to earth, took on human flesh, assumed a human nature. And in a very real sense, 
Jesus encapsulated and incorporated, personified the word of God. What's the point here? Simply that in whatever form, God has put his power where? In his word. This morning we come to our text in 1 Peter, which testifies to this same fact. So if you haven't already, take your Bibles, open with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter tells us, whether spoken, written, whatever the form, God's word has the power to change lives. And specifically, though, in its written form, the Bible, Scripture, the good news, the gospel, whatever you want to call it, has the power to change lives. It's the power that we need in our lives. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So again, open to First Peter this morning. We come to close out the first chapter as we make our way piece by piece, verse by verse, through this letter. And Peter ends the first chapter by giving us a word on God's word. Let's read that together. Read along with me, First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 23. He writes, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and, the, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word which is preached to you. Peter here is attesting to the power that's contained in God's word. So today, this morning, that, that's what we want to do. We want to likewise observe the power of God's word. Specifically, we're going to see here four displays of the word of God's power. Four displays of the word of God's power so that you might rightly appreciate, cherish, and use the word of God. Four displays of the word of God's power. And the first one is this. The word brings salvation. Verse 23, the word brings salvation. Again, verse 23. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. This first one is a big one. The word brings salvation. You may ask, well, where, where, where does he mention that in verse 23? Where does he talk about salvation? Look at the beginning of the verse. He says, for you have been born again. Now, I'm sure, I'm positive, all of you here have heard of that term, born again. It's just that nowadays, people don't know what it means or has, has lost its meaning. The phrase born again, it's been around for a long time, but it wasn't until the 60s in America that the phrase born again rose to a new prominence, a new place in the country. In the 60s and the 70s, you had these small groups of counterculture Christians. They started calling themselves not just Christians, but born-again Christians. It was a special thing. They were emphasizing the experience of new birth. But it didn't take long, however, before this term went mainstream. Everybody, every Christian started calling themselves a born-again Christian. It just became the in thing to do. Chuck Colson, who was part of the Watergate scandal, 
went to prison, became a Christian in prison. He wrote a book in 1976 called Born Again. That took the phrase and, again, put it in that national spotlight. And that same year, the Democratic Party presidential candidate, Jimmy Carter, he described himself in an interview as Born Again, first time that was done by a president. And to show you just how quickly this term went mainstream, just four years later, in 1980, the next presidential election, all three candidates described themselves as born again. It was just the thing to do. Since then, countless musicians, celebrities, athletes, other high-profile people have identified themselves with the label of being born again. The problem with this, however, is that most people today have no idea what this means. They don't get it. It's become just another buzzword or a label devoid of its actual meaning. Labels that they're pretty meaningless if you don't know what they mean. Or, or sometimes worse than meaningless, labels can be deceptive if you don't know what they mean, if you don't know what they represent. But that's what happened, or has happened today with this label of being born again. So do you know what it means? I mean, can we in the church at least get it right and, and get this one down? Can, can we do better? What does it mean to be born again? Well, let's answer that. Let's talk about that. Being born again is a biblical phrase. It's found in the Bible. It's not like it's a made-up term. It is a biblical term. We've seen it twice in 1 Peter, once in chapter 1, verse 3. Here again, we see it in verse 23. You also have a verse like John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes it a must. He's like, unless you're born again, you're not getting in. You're not saved. You're not Christian. The phrase born again literally means born from above. And it signifies the work that God does to give us life a second time. Not physically, but spiritually. Being born again expresses the concept of regeneration. You're like, well, what's that? What's regeneration? Well, regeneration is spiritual new birth. Spiritual new birth. You, know, you read through your Bible. You read, you know, for example, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You find out that all people are dead in their trespasses and sins. Dead from birth. You're born dead. Not physically, but spiritually. You're born and you exist spiritually dead. Understand, though, death, well, what is death? Death is, in the Bible does not mean going out of existence. In the Bible, death means separation. Physical death is the separation of your body and your spirit. Spiritual death is the separation of your spirit from God. And you may be born physically alive, but you're born spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. That's from sin, the inherited sin nature, the sins you pile on each and every day. And being spiritually dead, our spirits were cut off from God. They were darkened, enslaved to sin, defiled, corrupted, in a word, dead. I mean, you're just dead, spiritually. But regeneration, or the new birth, changes this. New birth, it's a recreation where an inner change takes place. God makes you a new spiritual being. It's a spiritual resurrection from death to life as you identify with Christ. It's a reconciliation of yourself to God, brought about his washing, his cleansing you from sin. It's a new spiritual birth. 
where you're reborn, not physically, but spiritually. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Colossians 2.13. Listen to this one. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And so many verses. Turn to this one. I'll let you see it for yourself. Ezekiel 36. Find your way, kind of in the middle of your Bible. Ezekiel 36. And I'll show you this one firsthand. Even in the Old Testament, God promised that he would do this work of regeneration, regenerating the people, giving them what they needed. Ezekiel 36. God's promising that time when he will install a new covenant for the people. What's going to happen? What's he going to do? Ezekiel 36. Look at verse 26. These are just promises. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll be careful to observe my ordinances. There's more, but these are God's promises to do a work in us, a new work where he brings us alive. We go from being dead with having a a dead heart, a heart of stone, to being alive, having a heart of flesh, where we come to know God, to walk in his ways, to please him. This is regeneration. This is a new birth. Notice who's in charge here, both in Ezekiel and even in 1 Peter. It's God. God says, I will do this, then I'll do this, then I'll do this. You just sit there. Regeneration is entirely a work of God. Conversion, where we have faith in Christ, we repent of our sins, that's something we share in. We we partner in that work. That's our willing response to the gospel. But regeneration, it's entirely God's work. Just as you don't have any part in your first birth, you don't have any part in your second birth. And nor could you, because those who are spiritually dead... They can't make themselves alive. I mean, have you ever gone to a mortuary, you've seen a dead person? They can't make themselves come back alive. They just don't have the ability. Same is true for you spiritually. We rely on God's mercy and his power to just speak life into us. He has to do it. Even back in our verse in 1 Peter, notice our phrase is in the passive. He says, you have been born again. It's not something you do. It's something that's done to you. And so it is. John 1, 12-13. He says, But as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this is the new birth. And when this happens, you, you come alive. Your heart comes alive, your godly desires come alive, your, your hatred for sin comes alive, your love for God comes alive. It, it just happens. You, you can't help it. It just happens. The eyes of your heart are open to spiritual realities and you desire to live rightly. Wait a second, though. You ask, okay, does this mean you become perfect? No. Hardly. <laughs> Not perfect, but new. You don't become perfect. 
but you do become new. You're given the new capacity to grow, to obey, to please God, all of which you didn't have before. You could not do before. You're still going to sin. You're still going to sin. Why? Because you still have the flesh, which is the title for that unredeemed part of our humanity, which we still have until we die. The difference, though, is that believers now come to hate their sin, to fight against it, to turn from it, continually seek to rid themselves from it. You'll fail at times, but thankfully we can rest assured in the forgiveness that Christ has already purchased for us on the cross. But if you have been born again, if you have been saved, you will start living like it. You may not become perfect, but you will start showing the inner transformation on the outside. And you can't help it. It just happens. If you've been given life by the Holy Spirit, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. You ever see a tree burnt to a crisp by a forest fire, but it's still standing, but you know it's like blackened and charred. You've seen it. Ever see any fruit on that tree? Never. And why not? It's dead. Dead trees don't bear fruit. That's what Christ himself said. But if someone were to somehow make that tree alive again, what would start happening? Pretty soon or later, you see some green leaves coming back. Eventually, fruit. And so it is with true born-again believers. God does a work of regeneration. He, He speaks life into them. You may not become perfect, but in time you will start bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You will show the change of that inner reality. A little side point here. By the way, you know, it should be obvious by now that the term born-again Christian is redundant, right? I mean, there's no such thing as a non-born-again Christian. This is a requirement for salvation. And there's no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. It, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want. But unless you repent of your sins and turn to Christ for your salvation, unless God makes you born again and transforms you, call yourself what you want. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. These are requirements for salvation. But in a nutshell, you know, this is what regeneration is. This is what it means to be born again, which was our original question. A new spiritual life that will show itself in time. Let's get back on track. I said before, this is a work of God. How does God do this? God is responsible for this work of new birth. How does he do it? God uses means. And so what does he use to bring this transformation about? Can you guess the answer? It's his word. Back to 1 Peter, if you're not already. Verse 23. For you have been born again through The word of God. I mean, verse 23 has all these modifiers, but strip them away. We'll get to them in a second. For you've been born again through the word of God. And that is hugely significant. I mean, we're talking about the most important thing ever, which is your salvation. How do you get it? How do you get that power to change your life? Maybe you're out there and your life is not going the way you you want it to. You're struggling against sin. You're just lost. You have no hope. You want to change. You feel powerless to change. How are you going to do it? You're going to look to yourself, your own resources, your own willpower. Not going to happen. Romans 1.16 again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, God's word, 
for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's where it is. Where God put his power in his word. The power to change people, to save them, to give them new life, eternal life. It's not found in our words, our cleverness, our arguments, our abilities. It's found in God's message. And specifically, God's written message contains the words, the truths, the realities that impart spiritual life. Back in verse 23, Peter describes the word as a seed. He says, you've been born again of of this seed, which is not imperishable, or not perishable, but imperishable. And he pictures the word as a seed, and all life comes from seeds. All of it, when you think about it. Human life, animal life, plant life, it all comes from seed form at the beginning. Seeds contain the potential for life in themselves. They have the power for life in and of themselves. The point he's making here is if you want to create human life, use human seeds. If you want to create animal life, use animal seeds. If you want to create plant life, use plant seeds. If you want to create eternal life, you need God's seed. And what's God's seed? It is his word. The seed is the word. Just as God brought forth all physical life through his word at creation, God brings forth all spiritual life through his word at recreation or regeneration or new birth. Same thing. So this is our first display of the power of God's word. This is number one. And nothing really puts the word of God and its power on display more than this. The word brings salvation. The word brings salvation. It's a work. It's too great for us. Too great for any person. But God's word can't accomplish it. Word brings salvation. That's number one. Number two now. Second display of the power of God's word. Word never fails. Number two now. The word never fails. Again to verse 23. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. Here in this verse, Peter piles on three words, all showing the permanence of God's word. And when you think about it, that which is permanent is that which is powerful. I mean, if it's permanent, it's powerful. First, he says the word, it's not perishable, but imperishable. Phthartos in the Greek means corruptible, perishable, subject to decay, mortal, transitory. That just describes everything in this world. Everything in this world is perishable. It's all perishable goods. My wife and I got married back in 2005. We got this, you know, nice yellow metal colander from Williams-Sonoma. You know, nice little thing for your kitchen. Just last week, threw it away. Why? It's starting to rust through. The thing was decaying. It's perishable. Everything's like this. Or here's another one. I'm sure this doesn't happen to you, but you know, sometime you know, we go to the market, buy some yogurt. You think, oh, this is good for you. You should probably eat this stuff. Put it in your fridge. Magically makes its way to the back of the refrigerator, and you find it two months later. Don't act like that never happens to you. You check the expiration date. It's long gone. You pitch it. It just this happens. Why? Because everything perishes in this life. It's it's corruptible. Everything corrupts, everything decays, everything perishes. Everything except the Word of God. It's imperishable, he calls it. It does not perish. 
It's actually a favorite word of Peter, imperishable. He uses it several times in this letter to describe the permanence, the greatness of spiritual realities. On several occasions, he describes the best that this world has to offer, which is gold, not as imperishable, but as perishable. Literally, what's the best this world has? Gold. He says, that's not the imperishable stuff. That's perishable. So if he's calling gold perishable, then what on earth is imperishable? Because I thought gold lasts a pretty long time. Well, look at chapter 1, verse 3. He says, our heavenly inheritance is imperishable. Verse 7, the proof of our faith is imperishable. Our salvation is imperishable. Verse 18, 19, Christ's blood is imperishable. The, the redemption he purchased with that blood is imperishable. That's a pretty stacked category of imperishable things. And what's he going to add to it? Verse 23, the word of God. word of God is also imperishable. Once again, this is just where the power is. Word does not corrupt, doesn't fade, doesn't fail. And neither does that which the word accomplishes, namely salvation. The imperishable word brings about an imperishable salvation. That's encouraging to think about. Your salvation will not fail or fade or decay. Verse 23, Peter goes on to describe the word as living and enduring. It's living, it's the source of life, it gives life. It's enduring, which means it abides, it remains. It's not obsolete, not irrelevant. It endures forever. And it does. When you think about it, I mean, the Old Testament goes back 3,500 years, roughly. New Testament, 2,000 years. And yet people are still reading it and devoted to it every single day. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's amazing. Also, you know, the New Testament alone, just the New Testament, it's preserved by 24,000 plus manuscripts from the ancient world. You know, what's the next best thing? Aristotle, 49 manuscripts. I mean, nothing comes close. Still here. It just remains. Still stands. And yet, the Bible, it's been attacked time and time again. Really, nothing's new under the sun. People will always try and tear down the word of God, deny it, disprove it, destroy it. They always fail. And that's the basic strategy of Satan, after all. Even from the beginning in the garden, his goal is to get people to deny the word of God. That's what he did with Eve. You know, has God really said that? just wants you to deny the word. But the word never fails. I mean, it remains. The word, it's like a great anvil. And it gets hammered and hammered and hammered year after year after year, for thousands of years now, but guess what? Anvil never breaks. You know, the hammers break. The hammers come and go, but the anvil, it's just there. It just remains. And so it is with the anvil of God's word. It remains the same. Peter's not done with this point, though. Look at verse 24 now. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. To reinforce this truth, Peter includes a quote from the prophet Isaiah, 40 verses 6 through 8 to be exact. You know, the book of Isaiah, it's split up into two parts. It kind of mimics the New Testament, by the way. You know how there's 66 books in the New Testament? 1 through 39 is the Old Testament, 40 through 66 the New Testament. Interestingly, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. And 1 through 40, or rather 1 through 39, contain words of judgment 
on the people for their sin and rebellion. But the second half, 40 through 66, contain words of comfort and hope and salvation because God's still merciful. He's still gracious with them. He will restore. It's called the Book of Comfort, and that's where this quote comes from, that Peter quotes, the beginning of that book, where God promises to the people to restore them. God will restore his exiled people. He'll draw them to himself. And God's promise of restoration doesn't fail. It's an enduring promise, an enduring word. As Isaiah says in chapter 40, you know, people are going to fail. Your abilities, they'll fail. Your promises, they will fail. Your word will fail. If that's what you're hoping on, you don't have much to stand on. But God's promises, his hope of restoration, his hope of salvation, his word, not going to fail. Enduring. Look at verse 24 again. Peter says, all flesh is like grass. That's a reference to humanity. And the key word being all. This is all-encompassing. There's no exceptions here. This is humanity at its best. The collective nature of man is like grass. But humanity is not without its great accomplishments, right? I mean, humanity has some bright points. Well, he says, in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The best man has is pictured as the flowers of the field. When you think of the Middle East, you often think of the desert. It's actually not all desert. There are hills, grasslands, flowers, wild flowers. And the flowers are the glory of the field, and this picture is the best man has to offer. This is man's achievements, riches, talents, beauties, learning, splendor, etc. You know, Bill Gates' billions is man's glory. The Dalai Lama's Nobel Peace Prize is man's glory. You know, Hollywood's next-gen star is man's glory. Michael Phelps' record-breaking time, that's man's glory. Einstein's Breakthrough discoveries, that's man's glory. But what comes next? The grass withers, the flower falls off. Perishable. Even the best mankind has to offer is perishable. And it all amounts to nothing. It's of no eternal value or significance. It's, it's futile. It's the same point Solomon made back in the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's a man who had everything. He was king. He had it all, money, pleasure, women, servants, land, power, you name it. He had everything. He lived that life out. What did he find? Nothing. He found nothing. Emptiness, futility, vanity, as he calls it. And why? Because it's just it's perishable. And perishable things can't satisfy your soul. And Solomon understood, Here, here's man. We were created not to be perishable, Yet we're going to perish. Work, Solomon says, is vanity. Learning, knowledge, vanity. Pleasure, you know, food, drinking, vanity. Achievement, accomplishments in life, vanity. Possessions, vanity. Wealth, silver and gold, vanity. Mankind is grass, the best he has. It's like the flower of grass. Grass withers, flower falls off. That's the best mankind can do. So if that's what you're hoping in. If you're hoping in this life and what this life affords, you don't really have hope. You have nothing but death awaiting you because everything's perishable. But if you want new life and if you want a new hope, verse 25, 
The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And it brings life that endures forever. And that's what this life is about. It's knowing God, living for him, enjoying him, getting to enjoy him for all eternity. And that's the same conclusion Solomon came to at the end of his life as he looked back on his failures and just seeking what this world has to offer. He understood what it's all about. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, last few verses of the book. He says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Examine your life. Are you like a young Solomon? Pursuing the vanities of the world, which will fade away and bring no satisfaction. Or are you like an old Solomon? Be the old Solomon. And God's word has the power. It's the power of new life. It's permanent, it's enduring, and it brings permanent, enduring life. That can be yours if you look to the word, discover Christ, embrace him in faith, and be born again. And do this today. Don't put this off until your old age. You may not have the chance. Look to Christ. This is the second display of the word's power. The word never fails. The word never fails. Number three, let's move on here. The word enables preaching. Number three now, the word enables preaching. Let's finish off verse 25. He says, And this is the word which was preached to you. Peter turns his attention now to the word of God, not spoken, but, or rather not written, but spoken. To preach means to declare, to proclaim, to tell. It pictures an ancient herald. And a messenger sent on behalf of the king to give the people the king's message. And the messenger would go, he would stand in front of the people, and he would herald to them the message of the king. And woe to the messenger who did not faithfully represent the king's message. And it's the same with God's messengers. Anyone who claims to be a messenger for God to the people must be measured by how faithfully he relays, not his message, but God's message, the king's message. This is the task of preaching. And understand, power in preaching comes from the Word. This is another display of God's power. You know, think about this. What we already learned. God uses the Word to bring new life. If that's true, if God uses the Word to bring new life, then you would be a fool to preach anything but the Word. Now it would be like a, a construction worker reaching for a tape measure or trying to drive in a nail. It's like, that's not where the power is. Reach for the hammer. Reach for the word. God put his power in the word and in the preaching of the word, not in games, programs, entertainment. Only the word through the spirit can produce new life. It's the foundation for ministry. It's the foundation for preaching. Just really quick here. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll make this one brief, but 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll show you this firsthand. This, this gets looked over in its context at times. But 2 Timothy chapter 3. The power of the word to save, the power of the word in preaching. Verse 14. Talking to Timothy, says, You, Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, 
knowing from whom you have learned them, and that, get this, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's sufficient for everything you need. Chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, in the original letter, there were no chapter divisions. It just kind of kept going. And he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What's the chain here? He says, first, that the word contains the wisdom that leads to salvation. Second, the word, it's breathed out by God himself. These are God's own words. Third, that word, it's profitable for everything. So guess what? When it comes time to preach the point that he makes, you better preach the word. You better preach the word. Don't preach your opinions. Don't preach current events. Don't preach the newspaper. Preach the word. Think of a farmer. What, what use would it be for a farmer to go out and just sow potato chips on his field hoping to get potatoes? Or to sow you know, soda cans or wine bottles hoping to get grapes? I mean, that, that's ridiculous. That those, three, those things can't bring forth life. And it's just totally pointless. That farmer will never see fruit. Yet so it is with preachers today who busy themselves with entertainment and motivational speaking separated from the word of God. They'll never see fruit. There's just no power there. Self-help gurus may be nice in helping you lose weight, but if you're after spiritual growth and salvation, use the word. In fact, God says, watch out. Watch out for people who don't use the word. I'll just keep reading chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 3. The, the next verse, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they'll turn aside to myths. There it is. They leave the power. Watch out. This is why we are Berean Bible Church. The Bible is our middle name for a reason. And people ask, people even scoff, you know, why are you guys so much about the Bible? Why do you preach so long? Why are you just so much Bible going on? Like, what's the deal? Why don't you lighten up, add some drama, some entertainment, throw in some comedy maybe? Like, let's lighten this thing up. Put on a show. But that would be like dulling the cutting edge of a blade. You know, if man's greatest need was laughter or entertainment or fun, games, comfort, that's what man needed, then yeah, yeah, I guess we, we could lighten it up in here and run some entertainment, some shows, some drama. But if man's greatest need is salvation and spiritual growth, use the word and the preaching of the word in all that you do. Just plain and simple. The power is in the word. The word enables preaching. Preaching changes lives. That's why we do what we do. But this is nonetheless the third display of the word of God's power. The, the word enables preaching. And we're going to finish it up here. Number four, the word enables loving. The word enables loving. I'll be brief with this last one, but 
The word displays its power in that it displays our ability to love. And why does Peter say this? I mean, if you turn back to 1 Peter, it's actually in the first word of our passage, verse 23. Look there again. Depending on your translation, in the NASB, the first word is for, or in some translations it's since. But the point is it's a huge transition word. Everything we learn about today, about the power of God's word, it's the foundation for what we learned last week, which was what? Look back at verse 22 of 1 Peter 1. He says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, and fervently love one another from the heart, for you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, as through the living and enduring word of God. See the connection. Last week we labored this point, the command, you know, love one another, our call to love one another. You can almost imagine Peter, though, anticipating the question, like, why? Why should we love one another? What's the big deal here? The answer is in verse 23 and 24 and 25. He says, because you've been born again by the word of God. I mean, that's why. Verse 22 is it's the fruit of the Christian life, love. Verses 23 through 25, though, explain the root of the Christian life. It's the new birth brought about by a powerful word. You love because you've been transformed by this powerful word. God's word accomplishes many things. One of them is giving life. Another is giving love. Both are essential. It makes sense. God is life. God is love. He gives both. And through his word, we get both. And now we are to share both. We preach the gospel. We give life. We love one another. We give love. Both are essential. But just channel everything we learned last week. I'm not going to rehash it. About the call to love others. And just add on top of that this foundation. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first transformed us by the power of his word. That's why we love. Four displays of the power of God's word. The word brings salvation. The word never fails. The word enables preaching. The word enables loving. Like we said at the beginning, it's so essential to understand where the power is. If you want to change your life, if you want change, real change, meaningful change, the direction of your life, you need to know where that power comes from. Then you need to tap into it. As you leave this morning, my prayer is that you you have a fresh affection for the Word of God, a greater desire for it, a love for it, an urge to know it, to live it out. That's what you need to do. I can spend all the time in the world telling you how powerful God's Word is, but if you if you don't read it, if you don't turn to it, if you don't meditate upon it and cherish it and live it, it does you no good. The Bible is God's gift to you for your salvation and the rest of your spiritual life. Everything you need for life and for godliness is there. So are you turning to it all the time? And if you're not, you're like a power drill that's unplugged, powerless, worthless. If you're not, you're like a hair dryer that's unplugged, totally incapable of doing what it was made to do. So get plugged into the Word. So many people you know, they come to me for counseling because their spiritual life is not going well. I say the same thing every time. You know, 
How's your time in the Word? Are you reading? Are you just not reading but meditating and cherishing and living? Do you want to read the Word? Well, not, not really, not as I should. In a polite way, I tell them, no duh. <laughs> no duh, your spiritual life is not going well. You're not tapping into the Word. You're detached from the power. So the source of your spiritual life is there. Do not neglect the Word. God's Word does not return to Him void. He promises to use it to accomplish great things. So grow in your devotion to the Word. Live it out and watch God do great things in your life here and hereafter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we pray to you now and praise you for your Word. We, We don't worship your Word, Lord. We don't worship the Bible. But we know you through it. We know life through it. We know how to live through it. And so we thank you for it. Help us to cherish the word only as it gets us closer to you. Help us to live in it, read it, meditate upon it, memorize it, ultimately apply it. That's why you've given it to us. It's not to sit on the shelf collecting dust. It's to just be in our hearts. Help us to translate that into our hearts and then into our hands, into our feet, into our mouth, into our lips. Everything we do and say may be governed and guided by your truth. We love you. We love your word. We want to be about your word here at Berean Bible Church. May we not detach our study of the word from our love for others, though. I want to end with this reminder for us. May we still passionately pursue loving others, loving you, loving others, and loving them in one of the ways that's most important, that is giving them the truth of your word. Help us to do that as we leave this morning. We cherish the gift we've been given. May we not take it for granted, but really live out your truth, your word. In your name we pray. Amen.